This is the second of two podcasts discussing some of the most influential films ever made. Not the greatest, the most influential. And in this edition, I'll be looking at certain films that used editing and sound in such innovative ways that they changed forever the way film expresses the human experience. And at its very best, that's what cinema does. Deepen our understanding of what it means to be alive. In comparison to the modern blockbusters, not everyone will have seen the films I am mentioning. But that is not the point. The point is that the few people who did see these films proved to be the right people. Brian Eno, one of the most sought-after producers in the music industry, famously said, The first Velvet Underground album only sold 10,000 copies, but everyone who bought it formed a band. In other words, the right people who saw these films were fellow filmmakers. It is a widely held and completely inaccurate belief that the single biggest development in the history of cinema came in 1927 with the release of The Jazz Singer. The assumption being that the arrival of synchronised sound marked the most seismic shift. That is not true. While the earliest films were silent, they lasted only as long as the single strips of films themselves, about 50 seconds. The earliest films present single scenes of uninterrupted space-time events. The single biggest shift in the development of cinema arrived when those space-time events were interrupted. That interruption came with editing. Because so many of the early films have been lost, it is impossible to tell for sure when the first interruption took place, but the earliest surviving example dates from 1898. Directed by A.E. Smith, Come Along Do shows a couple going into a gallery to view the exhibits. But the action is not important. What is important is that there was a cut from outside the gallery to inside, stopping one image and starting another. And that innovation facilitated spatial flexibility. You could now move from one location to another. More than that, it allowed for temporal flexibility. Time did not have to flow forward. It could move sideways to show us something happening at the same time somewhere else. Or it could leap forward into the future, like 2001. Or slip into the past, like Citizen Kane. Which, I hasten to add, was far from the first film to use flashbacks. Several examples can be cited from the silent era, but the point here is that editing allowed the director to shuffle, if not shatter, time. And that allows for the likes of Rashomon, Last Year at Marienbad, The Conformist, Once Upon a Time in America, The Usual Suspects, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and The Social Network. So the influence of Come Along Do is as basic as this. No editing, no feature films. Both Smith's and the Lumiere's first film last under a minute. But where workers leaving the factory began cinema's evolution, Come Along Do started cinema's revolution. Don't believe me? Consider this event. Now, let's listen to it without Bernard Herrmann's famous score. We still hear the sounds, right? Now let's take the sounds away. Nothing? What you are picturing in your mind's eye are all the rapid shots from the shower scene. Now try to imagine it as if Alfred Hitchcock had no choice other than to film it without edits in a single extended take. Not only that, 
Herman would have composed an entirely different piece of music, which means that editing almost always determines the score. Yes, there have been a few notable exceptions to film production where the score was composed in advance. Any Morricone's Once Upon a Time in the West Philip Glass's Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters. And Gustavo Santolala's Brokeback Mountain. But even the idea of editing allows directors to prepare shots in advance, and so they can visualise dramatic cadence. The overture leads to a crescendo, onto a diminuendo, allowing for a sostenuto, and then a recitative, which explains the continuing collaboration between Steven Spielberg and John Williams, the Coen brothers and Carter Burwell, David Lynch and Angelo Badalamenti, and Spike Lee and Terence Blanchard. And even when not collaborating with the composer, there have been entire films constructed around music that had already secured a life of its own before the film was even thought up. George Lucas's American Graffiti, Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon, Martin Scorsese's Shutter Island, and pretty much every Woody Allen film. And moving entirely in the opposite direction, you have films without soundtracks. City Lumet's Network, James Bridges' The China Syndrome, Thomas Vinterberg's Festen, Michael Haneke's The White Ribbon, and perhaps most famous of all, Hitchcock's The Birds. But not all technical innovations are devoted exclusively to assist the director in telling the story. Editing has also had a profound impact on acting. The curious thing is that this particular film wasn't so much a film as it was an experiment. It is a combination of shots edited in 1919 by Russian filmmaker Lev Kuleshov. Instead of telling a story, it shows how an actor's performance can be manipulated to suggest an emotion that was not there to begin with. Kuleshov's combination of shots features the face of famous silent Russian actor Ivan Mozhukin. Kuleshov intercut a series of three clips showing Mozhukin looking at a bowl of soup, a dead child and a woman. Kuleshov then showed the clips to an audience and asked for their reaction. For the bowl of soup, the audience said Mozhukin was hungry. For the dead child, Mozhukin was overcome with sadness. And for the woman, Mozhukin was filled with desire. What the audience didn't know was that it was the very same clip of Mozhukin each time. In other words, the audience took their own emotional responses to the images of the soup, the dead child and the woman and transferred them onto Mozhukin's face. Not only did this help develop the grammar of film, it also deeply affected screen acting. It didn't need to be theatrical or demonstrative. If anything, it needed to be less. Here is Robert De Niro. It's simpler than you think, and you don't, and it's very hard for actors, and I get caught up in that myself where you have to do more, do something, and you don't have to do anything, nothing, and you're better off, and you'll and it'll 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 work the way people are in life. Uh, they could 
you know, I'm talking to you and I'm looking at your expression and you could have been told that somebody in your family was this or that, some terrible thing, you're still going to have the same look on your face and that says more allows the audience to read into it as opposed to you telling them what they should feel and actors tend at times to try and so they have to give it something and they don't have to give it anything you just have to do it and it'll take care of itself in other words an experienced actor knows not only about acting but filmmaking the value of a wide shot a double and the power of a single the tighter the shot the less the actor has to do here is Michael Caine. The reason I ch you choose an eye is because in, in this shot now, the camera is obviously there shooting me. If I look at you with this eye into your other eye, you've lost me. If I look at you with this eye into that eye, this eye is in the camera. And if you want to play strong, don't blink and never change eyes. Only actors do that. People don't do that in real life. But Kuleshov's experiment did not only impact on acting. It went further into film grammar. Essentially, the Kuleshov effect encourages the audience to aggregate the meaning of consecutive shots. And within a couple of years, fellow Russian director Sergei Eisenstein took Kuleshov's principle and expanded it into montage. Until Eisenstein began experimenting, the overriding principle of editing was to take away the footage that was not needed. In other words, subtraction. With montage, Eisenstein arranged the footage into a specific order so that it resulted in a specific meaning. Not subtraction, but multiplication. He did it first in 1924 with Strike, where he intercut the massacre of striking workers with images of cattle being slaughtered. The next year, Eisenstein went even further with his literally revolutionary Odessa step sequence in his masterpiece Battleship Potemkin. But here is the thing, editing is not just about pictures, it is also about sound and this is where the jazz singer does earn its place. Mammy. Mammy. Suddenly, editing meant cutting the images with the sound, or against the sound, which meant deciding when the audience hears the sound. Directed by Alan Crossland in 1927, the jazz singer gave screen actors something they had never had before, a voice. So they opened their big mouths and out came talk. Talk, talk. You're wrong, Dr. B what are you doing, a southern accent? You're wrong, Dr. Brewster. I'm very proud of being a woman. Why should I waste my time listening because to Because I have a right to be and I have a voice. Yes, you do. It took cinema over three decades to synchronize sound. But once that was mastered, other developments quickly followed. And in 1940, there was a sonic addition equitable to the visual edit. Stereo. Walt Disney's Fantasia was the first film to use stereophonic sound, and that facilitated the opportunity to have the sound move. Just as an edit allowed the image to shift from one angle to another, stereophonic sound paved the way for Dolby, and without that, we wouldn't have any of these immersive experiences.
Now, those three pictures were all shot on location. And although cinema began in a realist vein, by the mid-1920s, the medium had industrialised, with studios springing up across the globe. And while this allowed for greater control over film production, it also meant that filmmakers spent most of their times in the controlled confines of the back lot. That changed in 1945 with the release of Rome Open City. Roberto Rossellini's film turned out to be a cinematic necessity. More than two decades under Mussolini's fascist boot, Italian cinema was reborn, with this vital film about the resistance against the Nazis in occupied Rome. Already on a minuscule budget, the production soon ran out of funds and film stock. In stepped Rod E. Geiger of the US Signal Corps, and it was Geiger who, by various means, was able to secure the discarded film rolls used by the US Army. It resulted in a film of incredible urgency. Made just after the Allies had liberated the city, this film had an immediate and enormous impact on filmmakers around the world. Studio productions had practically cauterised themselves by filming on the backlot and sound stages, but neorealism catapulted cinema back out onto the streets. For our next and final film, we move from the streets of Rome in 1945 to the boulevards of Paris in 1960. New York Herald Tribune! New York Herald Tribune! Until Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless was released, whether a film was realist or fantasy, all fiction films had one thing in common. Continuity. Each shot was rationally connected to the next shot, and the scenes also. But with Breathless, Godard presented a disjointed plot and an editing style that deliberately disrupted the continuity. Breathless delivered the jump cut. Godard's aim was to show film as a construct, to pull back the curtain and reveal its inner mechanics. So effective was Godard that his film radicalised narrative cinema, giving it a much-needed shot in the arm. Directors as disparate as Ingmar Bergman, Bernardo Bertolucci, Brian De Palma and Woody Allen have all used the style. New York Herald Tribune! Stop However radical Godard's intention was, the jump cut has now become mainstream, which means that the curtain has been redrawn and the mechanics are once more hidden. So much so that it is everywhere, from pop videos to the Transformers franchise and the Jason Bourne series. But since almost everything that begins as radical is eventually diluted into the mainstream, its dilution is hardly important. What is important is how editors have co-opted the jump cut, so that although the movement is interrupted and there is a conscious lurch in time, the transition does not rupture the narrative as Godard's did. Instead, the editors have found a way to lessen the jump. And that is through sound. Listen to this. Did you notice the jumps? Of course not. But watch the Last Supper sequence from Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ and you will see more than a dozen. And they are all smoothened out by the use of sound. So that's what cinema does, film, record and edit. And at its very best, it deepens our understanding of the human experience, of what it means to be alive. 